0: Welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable, board game content from across the industry. I am your host, James Staley, and in this episode we are chatting with Rob Doherty, founder of Wise Wizard Games, publisher of Star Realms, Hero Realms, and his newest title, Robot Quest Arena, which is currently on Kickstarter. Robert has raised over $4.5 million on Kickstarter across 12 campaigns. He's also a Magic the Gathering Hall of Famer. Rob, welcome to The Binge. It is awesome to have you here, sir. How are you doing?
1: Good, good. Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, It's fantastic. Uh, Anytime uh, we get somebody who has the amount of campaigns like yourself that you've run, uh, it is always a treat because we can go pretty deep on... Obviously, we're going to talk about the game, Robot Quest Arena, in a couple moments, but we got an opportunity to go deeper on some things like how Kickstarters are run and things like that. So this is going to be a lot of fun. Before we get into that, though, your history, your story is is crazy. You started in seventeen. You signed up for the uh, for the Air Force, I guess. Is that is that right? Oh, U.S.
1: Army, U.S. Army. Uh, So uh, um, I was. um, it was the 1980s. Um, uh, Ronald Reagan was the president of the United States. Have <laughs> um, to date yourself. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, Cold War. Yeah. So, uh, uh, and I, uh, um, I was a, uh, I was a, a, you know, senior in high school. I, I have a, uh, an August birthday. So I was young for my, you know, for my class. Um, and, uh, I had a, I had a pretty, uh, um, Pretty severe rebellious streak uh, at uh, uh, at that age, and I was uh, um, I would I was skipped school a lot. Um, I basically showed up for tests, so I'd like you know get you know fail for homework and for uh, for class participation and stuff, but then come in and just you know get A's on the tests and like basically barely <laughs> squeaked out of uh, uh, squeaked out of high school. And uh, I knew I wasn't in like a mental place to to jump into college. Um, and uh, you know, they had they were offering the you know GI Bill uh, at you know, at the time. Um, so uh, um, so I signed up for the uh, uh, for the US Army. I actually had to get my uh, my mom had to give permission because I wasn't 18 yet, so that was an interesting conversation. Um, and uh, and uh, yeah, I went uh uh, unless the U S army, I knew I wanted to try and get some skills out of it, but I was also, uh, um, uh, you know, young and looking for adventure. So, uh, I did a weird combination where I, for, uh, they have, a, uh, uh, a job, they have a job description in, yeah. in the, in the military MOS, And I was, uh, uh, and I was a 76 Charlie, which is, uh, uh, which is a uh, quartermaster basically supply. Um, so I was like, okay, I'll get, yeah, I'll do that. So I'll get business skills. Like I can, you know, learn yeah. how to handle inventory and do those sorts of things. That's um, great. and, but, uh, I signed up for, uh, for airborne, which is a, uh, uh, paratroopers. <laughs> um, and, uh, basically what the recruiter told me at the time, you know, was <laughs> that basically every, every airborne units have every, everybody in the, you know, they have airborne units need supply guys, just like every unit needs supply guys. And in airborne units, you know, everybody jumps, everybody fights. Yeah. Um, so I was like, Oh, this is perfect. So I can, I can do the stuff. Oh, you know, the fun stuff. I want to do fun stuff that yeah. I don't want to do, but I can also uh, gain skills. Um, and the recruiter assured me that I'd be, you know, you know, if I, you know, if I successfully made it through airborne training, I would be placed in, in an airborne unit. That wasn't exactly true. So I, uh, I did successfully complete airborne school, but then, uh, I got placed into a, uh, uh, about as rear echelon a unit as possible. Um, I was put into a, um, uh, transportation company, uh, okay. stationed in Fort Riley, Kansas, Wow. Um, this was part of the 1st Infantry Division, uh, so this is back when we were geared up for war with Russia, yeah. uh, Soviet Union at the time, uh, so basically half the 1st Infantry Division was in Germany and half was in the US, and you know, in case of war, the rest of, you know, the rest of us would you know, come over to, to, you know, to Europe, yeah. but basically a transportation company's job was to take stuff from completely safe areas and bring them to mostly safe areas, you know, and just basically it was a bunch of truckers and mechanics. So that was not exactly what I had in mind, but uh, but it was you know there were a lot of great people. It was uh, it it was fun. I did my I did my uh, my three years in in the uh, uh, enlisted uh, and got my GI Bill and uh, uh, college fund, and I got out and I was going to school. Uh, and then for uh, engineering though,
0: right. Was it, was it engineering? uh, Well,
1: uh, yeah, I want, so I wanted to go into engineering, but, uh, basically I had that terrible high school history. So that was, uh, uh, that was problematic. Um, so basically I was going to community college and just, you know, repairing my, my GPA. Uh, but then, um, uh, uh, desert storm started. Um, and I got a, I got a telegram literally telegram uh uh and basically calling me back to active duty and it was like basically this this magic piece of paper that I had so I basically I, I you know went to my uh my landlord and I was like yeah I got to get out of my lease and they're like no you can't get out of your lease you got x more time I handed them a piece of paper it's like okay yeah you're out of your lease Went to the college and <laughs> yeah. it was like hey I need a refund on my tuition they're like no you're past the date for that handed them thing they're like okay yep yeah, you got it and then uh Um, and basically went to the airport and handed them that paper and then yeah they put you on a plane and so you uh, actually got deployed um no yes no mostly no so basically in that war there was this massive backlog of uh getting troops to uh the theater right like basically we were just you know mad there massive logistics involved so while I was in active reserves and the inactive reserve hadn't been used in forever, but starting with that war, they started using them on a regular basis. Um, and so we got called up, but uh, we were uh, they they were basically there were delays getting people over to uh, uh, to the to the theater in Southwest West Asia. So basically it took a long time to get people going. Uh, and during this time, uh, basically the big concern was chemical warfare. So um, they, we did uh, daily uh, 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 training in the, in the uh, gas chamber, basically tear gas chamber to basically the idea of this training was to show you that your, your protective gear actually worked. So basically you'd go in wearing your protective gear and you were fine. And then you'd take, take off, off your protective gear and you'd be choking on tear gas. And, and they were like, hey, so, and they just—I I cannot t- tell you how many times we did that in, like, uh, uh, in, in, you know, in prep to go over. And it got to the point where everybody just just wanted to get over there, even though yeah. you know it's that's insane. Um, and uh, uh, the day we were um, we were uh, supposed to be going, um, uh, basically, that's the war ended we were basically were in, uh, information to basically to, to, to deploy, to go. And they basically said not sending in more troops over. And they started, you know, like inactive reserve, go here yeah. and, it, you know, other people, etc. So, so yeah, no, didn't actually go to, you know, didn't actually get deployed, but kind of got pulled up. So it was a very weird uh, scenario, but then, yeah, then I went into college uh, and basically, um, uh, I, uh, applied to Northeastern university in Boston and they were like, yeah, your grades were not good enough. Uh, if you want to get in, you need to take these courses in, in, in your community college, you need to get A's in all of them. Um, so I took that, took those courses in a semester and got A's in all of them. And then I got into uh, Northeastern university, uh, as uh electrical engineering student
0: wow now and you didn't stay so at some point you decided you're going to get into games i guess from there right some there's kind of something kind to of shift in <laughs> yeah, there
1: so yeah so yes uh so i was uh was electrical electrical engineering student northeastern had this has this really cool program where basically you spend half uh they break the year up into uh into quarters and half of the quarters you're in class and half the quarters you're at a job um and uh um, and so the freshman year, you just do all classes. So I did all classes freshman year, loved the classes, got, I got a, had a, like outstanding GPA did was doing really well. Um, and, uh, then it time came time to apply for jobs. And I got, a I applied for work at, uh, a place called the MITRE corporation. And I worked, uh, in a, uh, there was an image processing research laboratory and they mm. did all kinds of cool stuff with, uh, um, uh, data analysis on, uh, using uh, um, uh, things like sub pixel analysis for uh, like figuring out uh, uh, for getting more uh, resolution out of like satellites and uh, yeah. data compression for uh, for, uh, for sending mug shots over uh, to, uh, over radio waves and all, all kinds of you know all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, but basically as I studied what I uh, more what I learned was, I really liked the physics and the math, but I wasn't actually that into the engineering. It was okay, but it wasn't Mm -hmm. like a passion. Um, And then I was a little bit deer in the headlights because I was like, all right, if I want to work in in physics or if I want to work in math, I really need a PhD. And that's, you know, many, many more years. And right about this time, Magic the Gathering came out and uh, I got into it very early like when the game came out as a collector uh and uh you know, so i i was into like uh comic book cards you know collecting uh, stuff like that and i like strategy games so this game basically you know uh yeah. uh scratched all itches uh it was you know so i got really into it and i was collecting it but i discovered very early on oh my gosh this is hard to collect i bought a box thinking okay that'll do it because uh, that generally did with uh, things, and then I re- then basically it didn't do it, and then I figured out what their rarity scheme was, and realized they had a print sheet of 121 rare cards, and that you got one per pack. And then of course, okay, as you're trying to collect it by opening packs, when you get to one card away from your collection, on average, you're going to have to open 121 packs just to get that yeah. last card. So that's many boxes. It's hundreds of dollars, and I was, you know, I was a poor college student, so basically. Uh, I started selling my extra magic cards uh, online. As far as I knew, I was the first person to sell magic cards online. Like there, there may have been others, I have no idea. But I distinctly remember when... The first other person posted that they were selling cards for money. I was like, "Hey, that's my thing. I think they shouldn't be able to do that." Um, but, uh, but basically, I sold cards uh, there, and I also went to the magic clubs at MIT. I'd I'd, uh, I'd pack my backpack full of uh, uh, full of magic cards and hike across the Charles River and go to the uh, go to the game nights at MIT, and I'd play there, and I'd also sell cards to uh, um, you know uh, to people there. And, um, I was able to actually make a really large amount of money selling cards and turn that into buying more cards and this, this snowballed, uh, um, and it got to the point where I was earning enough money that my, my grants and loans were in jeopardy because Mm -hmm. I, I no longer was qualifying uh, for them. So I decided to take a break from, uh, from school And uh, because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do anyway, and go and open the game store and go into, uh, you know, selling cards full time, my assumption was that that would fail miserably, then I would be poor again, and (laughs) I'd have figured out what I wanted to do at school. And I'd go back and, you know, and, uh, and, and, you know, and, and go back to studying. But the the uh, the the game store was you know was kind of gangbusters. So basically, um, I was at the game club at MIT, uh, and um a friend of mine, Ricardo, uh, uh, was talking to somebody, and he said, "Oh, you need to talk to Rob. And the guy was uh, was from the Boston Globe and he was doing an article on magic. Uh, and uh, he was like, "Oh, Rob's opening a game store. you should talk to him. So the guy, you know, basically, Talk to the guy. He got my story, and uh, and the day I opened my uh, uh, my game store, uh, in the front page of the of the of the of the newspaper, in the section in the I can't remember which section it was, but basically one of the sections of the newspaper, front page, big story, picture, magic cards, and they had this interview with me, and it said Rob Doherty, who's opening a game store in Davis Square today. (laughs) And so there were all these people walking around the walking around the town where I was opening up my game store, looking for this, looking for my shop. Meanwhile, my shop was on the second floor. I had a little sign. Uh, but mainly I was opening the shop because Wizards of the Coast had start put in this rule where you couldn't buy large quantities of cards anymore if you didn't own a physical store. So I was yeah. like, okay, fine. I'll have a physical store. I'll buy lots of cards. I'll sell them online like I've been selling online. All, you know, And then I'll have these tables where my friends can play games with me. And so it'll be like a little game club and I'll keep doing my online sales business. But no, we had like hundreds of people come in that day like you looking for cards. And I had this insane inventory because I had, you know, I'd been doing this thing where I'd been rolling over and putting all my money into more and more cards. So I had just, I had everything in large quantities and just had gangbuster sales from like, uh, uh, from that day. And uh, uh, yeah, so I, so the game store thing was going full blast and, uh, um, and, uh, uh, and, and never actually got back to college. So, uh, <laughs> you know, so so I've when had you a couple just, years of an engineering degree, which is, you know, all education is
0: helpful. Kind of I think is the, is the lesson <laughs> here, right. As I always say, that to my kids too, is just get some education. Cause it'll, it'll, it'll do you well in the future. So when did this transition into your first uh, Kickstarter? So what, what was the first Kickstarter you did?
1: So, first Kickstarter that I ran personally was uh, for Star Realms. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, basically, I uh, um, I got into I had a game store. I got into making. You know, I had always been into tinkering with games and making games. And I made some small products like accessories for Magic tokens and such. Then I started making games. Went through multiple game companies making games that some people really loved, but never really caught on and sold. Uh, really well my first big hit was with my friend Justin Gary we did a game called Ascension which is a deck building mm-hmm. game that was that was big hit uh you know really popular um and uh, uh and then I uh then I made uh, Star Realms with uh as sort of a side project uh uh with my friend Darren Castle um this was mainly we were started out just trying to do a resume project for him because yep. he wanted to get work in uh, in games uh and i was like oh you should make a game that'll be the you know that's a just a great way to get started with it and then we just got really addicted to the game we were working on and uh and and at some point i was like we should just make this ourselves and then we so we did a kickstarter for uh for star realms um and uh that went really well uh we raised About fifty thousand dollars on that Kickstarter, Um, and uh, and demand was really really high. Um, You know, from the Kickstarter and you know stores started uh, place started ordering more. I upped our print run to ten thousand units uh, for our first printing, which I thought was insane. Like basically, it was. I was worried as I was doing it that it was way too much, but it wasn't close. We blew through. Um, the first printing in the first year, we printed like 10,000 units and 15,000 units then 20,000 units then 30,000 units, then 30, units wow. just basically turning the money. We were getting around as quickly as possible, uh, making more games, uh, star realms had MSRP of 15, still has an MSRP of 15 bucks. It's a little box. Uh, uh, here's the size of a, like a fat deck of cards. And, uh, but it's a full deck building game. Uh, and, uh, uh and people really like the play of it. Um, and, uh, that little box was going, uh, on, uh, eBay. People were reselling them for like $80. Um, wow. they were so hard to find, uh, that first year, but, uh, and we won a uh, uh, tabletop game of the year from by, uh, from South by Southwest. Um, and a whole bunch of a uh, bunch of board game geek game of the year awards and, uh, uh, et cetera. So we won, we won like seven game of the year awards, uh, uh, for Star Realms and it was just a massive hit. Um, and then from there, um, uh, we did, uh, um, we launched multiple games and, yeah. uh, our next Kickstarter after Star Realms, uh, raised half a million dollars instead wow. of like $50,000. Basically because people were like, Star Realms is so good. guys are making it we're gonna try it so uh uh, so that was obviously awesome to see and it was basically the first time i really grew to having a a super strong platform like i've been making games you know uh, for a long time and really hard to get the games in front of people like get stores to carry them get people to try them um, and finally I had gotten to this point where basically if we made a game, a whole bunch of people would try it. and, and that's, uh, a really awesome, <laughs> awesome place to be. So that is super cool.
0: So on that note, your most recent Kickstarter you've launched robot quest arena. I'm going to share my screen. Uh, the people that are listening, uh, to our podcast, they can't see, we'll try to use as descriptive uh, language as possible, but I'd be remiss if we don't go through this game. Cause it looks awesome. So, um, so cool! Yeah. So I'm sharing my screen. So let's talk a little bit about Robot Quest Arena. So, I mean, right now you're at 200. And, I'm going to put this in Canadian dollars because it always sounds larger. But two over 275 thousand dollars. <laughs> uh, you two thousand eight hundred and twenty-four backers. You still got 17 days to go. Uh, yeah, we're this, in our.
1: We're basically tomorrow is our one week mark. So yes.
0: Yeah, you guys are crushing it. There's no. There's no doubt about that, right? So, uh, walk us through this game. You got these super awesome minis. You've got some, I guess, deck building elements into it. Um, yeah. So
1: this 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 game is really cool. So it takes uh, deck building like Star Realms, Your Realms, yeah. you know, Ascension, Dominion, that style of okay. You're 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 doing the the straight deck building thing, but it's on uh, on a board where you have a miniature and you get these we got these awesome uh, awesome little miniatures and uh, um, you are moving this robot around and battling other robots in the arena. There's all kinds of like game tiles which do various things, like this is the solar panels, it gives you extra energy if you're on it. So basically um, you have this tactical skirmish battle game. Mm-hmm. Um, that is powered by by a deck building game. When you have have cards that give you energy, the primary resource in the game, you can use that to buy additional cards, just like you could normally with a deck builder. But you can also use your energy to move. One energy will get you one point of movement in the arena. uh, you can, uh, and movement you can use offensively in that you can push other robots. So basically oh, cool. you, for two points of movement, you can take a robot and move into their square and push them out to the next square. That's and cool. it, uh, you can also push robots into other robots, in which case they both take damage, push robots into walls they take damage there. There's a bunch of, there's hazardous tiles in the game, like fire and tacks and, uh, uh, you know, saw blades, all kinds of crazy stuff. You can, uh um you can you know push other bots into that uh which is a lot of fun um and so you get these really really interesting turns where you've got okay i've got i've got four to spend i could buy this four cost energy card which will let me buy bigger stuff later i could buy these two weapon cards which will allow me to attack other bots and score victory points in the game or i could move to this advantageous tile on the arena and get start getting benefits from being just from being there, or I could move over to this person and push them into this, you know, into this nasty thing and do a bunch of damage. Um, So you get all kinds of cool like uh, options that come up just by the nature of how the game works. And then uh, and you also have weapon cards. Weapon cards, when you play them, they do damage. You got hand-to-hand ones, which you can use against somebody who's right next to you, or range ones they can use against robots that are multiple spaces away. And when you attack somebody and you damage them, they have health, uh, which is represented by these little like beads. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, when you deal a damage, you just take one of their health off of their card and you put it into your victory point pile. Um, and uh, so your attack's basically get you victory points. Um, And when the last health is taken off a robot, they're removed from the table, but the player isn't out of the game. They don't miss any action on that player's next turn. They immediately respawn at full health. So basically, you're dying a lot, and you're killing your friends a lot over and over again. Um, uh, and but you're always like jumping back into the fight.
0: Do they lose the upgrades? So if somebody dies, the no, next round. No, no. So basically,
1: as you're buying, ba- basically dying, is no big deal in Robot Quest. <laughs> basically, all the cards you bought, you keep. Um, and so basically, literally, you pick up your piece. You wait for your turn. On your turn, you come back in at full health, but you have to uh, enter on a spawn point. So you'll not be in the place in the arena you were previously. So it's a lot like when you're playing a video game and you die and you're like, oh, I'm back to the spawn point, run back to where I was. You know, like that's, uh, uh, so it's got this sort of, uh, video game-esque feel in that sense but uh, but yeah so one of the nice things about that is um while this is a free-for-all arena battle game you don't have the gang up problems that you frequently have in free-for-all battle games mm. because dying is not it's not a big problem so like if everybody decided to gang up on me and they attacked me okay first couple people kill me great my piece is off the board Um, Then the third person's like, oh, I guess I'll attack one of my team, my people I was teaming up against Rob with because I have these attack cards. Um, And then on my turn, I respawn and, you know, I go and do my thing. So it doesn't it's not how many times I die. That's not me dying is not a problem. It's how many points I'm accumulating on my turn. From attack, So you want to yeah. set up really cool plays on your turn, do lots of damage, push robots into each other, do do all kinds of you know, do as much carnage as you can on your turn um and if people kill you no biggie, you just respawn and, and get back into the action.
0: So when I look at the the packaging, right, uh in at least what's in on your Kickstarter page, I can see like peg holes, for instance, on, on the minis and so forth Yeah, is, so has this been, de- this has obviously been designed to go into retail, right? When, yes. Uh, after fulfilled, but there's a lot of exclusivities I've seen in there. So there's exclusive packs are just for Kickstarter. I think yep. I saw many in there actually is just for Kickstarter as well. Is that yep. fair to say here? Or-
1: yes. Yeah. So basically there's a Kickstarter exclusive robot um, and there are Kickstarter exclusive cards and Kickstarter exclusive tiles. Um, I really love the running Kickstarters and the Kickstarter exclusives uh, in that we get a lot of great feedback from the backers during the campaign. Yeah. And we can make content based on the stuff that they're asking for. Obviously, using our knowledge of the game and the system to make, you know, sometimes people ask for things that actually wouldn't be fun if you implemented in the game. But a lot of times the ideas are actually really good and cool, and we can make those. And add them to add them in these stretch goals. But also in the stretch goals, you can do stuff that you wouldn't feel comfortable doing in the regular game because Kickstarter backers tend to be pretty savvy gamers. So they're advanced yeah. gamers. So basically you can throw curveballs at them that might be a little too confusing for the average customer who's going to be opening up the product. So we can put a lot of weird and cool and wacky things. In those Kickstarter exclusives that maybe wouldn't be ideal for coming in the base set box um, uh, because they'd you know be a little bit uh, um, too confusing for the uh, for uh, the average person opening up uh, yeah. opening up a box off a store shelf. Uh, but kick, as I said, Kickstarter backers tend to be the type of gamers who are they're super into games. They're buying them, you know, they're paying money well ahead of time to basically get games early and to get the extra stuff. And so these, you know, the the people who are doing that, they they can handle it. So you can you can do some really interesting and cool stuff with those.
0: With your minis, um, now I notice there's two versions of the game. There's a like a standard game and then there's like a deluxe version. The deluxe I believe comes with the minis.
1: Actually the the standard version comes with the minis. Oh it does the deluxe version just has more content. So basically it's the, the basic tier and we've got the high tech tier. Basic tier comes with a base set game and it comes with four minis. And a really big feature is the minis are full color. So basically you won't have to, uh, you won't have to paint these. Uh, So um, that was important to us because the, the world is so rich. The IP is so cool and and flavorful. And also we're trying, we design deck builders that are really easy for people to enter at, Mm -hmm. but have, Wonderful complexities that you can get through play. So basically, uh, very they're the type of games where you can play it with your friend who doesn't game, your mom or your brother who doesn't play doesn't play this type of game. You can teach them and they can handle it. But um, you know, uh, I'm a, I'm a Hall of Fame Magic player. One of my business partners is a Hall of Fame Magic player. We're very competitive. We like to beat each other up in games. And the game, so the games we design can handle that level of you know high end play. Yep. Um. So uh. Um. So basically, you end up with games which have a lot of depth. Like with Star Realms, for example, people play Star Realms hundreds or thousands of times. If you can look at like people's like play logs on the online version, yep. and they there are literally people with like ten thousand games. Uh, wow. in. Um. And so the replayability is super high. The uh, the the room for skillful play is really high, but easy to learn. And we're doing the same thing with Robot Quest. So because it's an easy-to-learn game, great for casual people, like the gray miniatures that people can paint themselves, that's really cool. Like, I, I like those. I used to play a ton of Warhammer and paint models and do all that yep. sort of stuff. But it's a pretty wonky hobby. And mm-hmm. your average kid buying a game you know in the store is not going to paint it. And a, a gray miniature would not do this world justice. It's a very colorful and lively world. Uh, so the pre-painted miniatures were very, very important to us. I think for
0: the people that are hardcore anyways, they may do their own kind of uh, touch-ups on, on the robots anyways, sure. make them look distressed. And so on. like I've seen some really crazy yeah. stuff online. With the number of campaigns you've done, which has been a lot, um, what would you say is um, kind of the biggest learning or the biggest thing you would do going forward you do going forward now on, on subsequent campaigns With like, what's something you've locked in that you've learned that if there's another publisher listening right now, or they're thinking, gosh, you know, where do I start? Or, you know, what are some key things I need to do for my campaign? What's the one thing you would say they need to do for their campaign?
1: So, so basically I'll gear this towards someone running their first Kickstarter campaign. Sure. Um, and uh, the uh, imp- super important to not get carried away and to do your math, do your due diligence ahead of time and figure out the true fulfillment cost of every stretch goal that you put in there. Like people get very excited in a Kickstarter campaign, and they ask for all kinds of cool things. And the backers just see the number of dollars um, that are being raised, and they don't think about fulfillment costs and such. So they might ask, for example, for like a deck box. And they'd be like, you just raised $100,000. Surely you can do a deck box. But what you as the Purdue, the the person running the Kickstarter has to do have to do is think about okay how much does the deck cost cost to, to make okay how much does the deck box cost to ship how much does it cost to store is it going to push me over a weight threshold or package size threshold and increase shipping costs universally across the board yeah. like there are uh, a lot of Kickstarter campaigns that are run by novices they first-time creators and such, They will get carried away. They will overpromise. And then when they go to fulfill the campaign, they'll end up losing a ton of money. They'll spend all the money the Kickstarter campaign raised and then like have to mortgage their house or something to, to end up to fulfill because... They got from from the point by adding something in that was that did have a, one of those big hidden costs, like maybe a shipping cost or whatnot. Yeah. They will push themselves over a threshold where instead of making money with every backer, they end up losing money with every backer. So you know you got to look at your margins, know what they are, figure out what you can offer and what you can't, figure out your stretch goals ahead of time as much as you can. You can take feedback from players and you can know okay, I'm going to be doing some cards. So maybe some of the cards are undefined and you can get, uh, get feedback from the players. But, uh, you know, but basically like doing a play mat as a, as a, uh, as a freebie, as a, you know, a stretch goal probably is a really terrible idea because they're expensive to make <laughs> yeah. and they're heavy. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it, it could work up here. No, if you really want to add a play mat, sure. Add a play mat, do it as an add on. Yeah. If a person wants the payment, they can pay for it. If they don't want it, they don't have to. Uh, so that's that sort of watch out for that pitfall would be the advice that I would give to. Um, I'd say
0: watch out for your add-ons as well. Like this is one thing I ran into in my last campaign was uh, there's pick pack fees, right? So most yeah. of the fulfillment houses will say, you know, we will pack up to three items for this cost, but each additional item over and above those three items is going to cost you another fifty cents, another sixty cents to, to yes. pick. So, you know, if you got the smorgasbord of, uh, of add-ons, you're like, oh, yeah, I'll just add it all on. It's great. People can pick what they want. Well, keep in mind that you're paying fulfillment costs and pick pack costs for each additional piece you put in that box over the certain standard level that those uh, those fulfillers have.
1: Yeah, not to mention the logistics of getting all those items pre-positioned in your yeah, fulfillment, your fulfillment centers around the world. And barcoded uh, and all this be, kind of
0: stuff too, yes. right?
1: And you can also get bitten by minimum order quantity. Like if yeah. you offer an add-on and uh, and eight people buy it, okay, well, my minimum print quantity is 2,000, so I guess I'm printing 2,000 units to fulfill these eight, uh, you know, like that's uh, You, you can, might as well you know, 3D print it trouble at,
0: at that number, right? Yeah. Like,
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, you basically have, so, so those, you know, those sorts of things, but, uh, add-ons are obviously safer than, uh, than stretch goals because of the, you know, the fact that you can get some revenue to offset your costs, but, uh, but yeah, that's, there are, um, you have to be careful in what you are, uh, and what you're putting out there. You can give people things that they will love that won't cost you a ton to, to ship or to fulfill. Um, and you can give, people things that they might not even like as much but but cost you a fortune so you got to you know you just have to be careful which what things you're offering
0: what's the biggest mistake you've made across all your campaigns you've you've learned from and that others should learn from
1: oh man um so um i uh i think my my biggest problem is with and this is a recurring problem for me because i never learn uh i I am super perfectionist on the on the game. Yeah. and uh, I will we you we'll, know sometimes we'll be late in the process and you know a designer will come up with something, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so good. We have to we have to change it and put this in. And then, you know, three, four months out the window because you know, like you know making this you know making these late changes you know, it's, it's good and bad because, you know, it makes me very happy with the end product when it, you know, when it actually finally goes out, but sometimes they can, you know, they can be significantly late and that will cause you a lot of headaches that, you know, you don't, you know, don't need to give yourself. Uh, so, um, but I honestly, I still have a problem with that. Like, basically I can't, I can't resist, you know, those, uh, that's one of the things about, Having being the CEO and basically uh, having your own company uh, is there's nobody. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, like your uh, your the other officers in the company and stuff will you know will say, hey, I don't think this is a good idea. But if you really want to do it, you can do it. Not you know. Whereas if you're working for some other company, they'd be like, yeah, that's crazy. Save it for the next product. You know, we, we've got a deadline here. Uh, so uh, um, so yeah, there's some there's some dangers there, and uh, um, you know just trying to make things uh too uh, perfect at the cost of uh you know a cost of the deadlines
0: i had a, a boss once say to me that seek excellence don't seek perfection
1: yeah <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah that's good that's you
0: can never get you can never achieve perfection but you can you can achieve right. excellence um right. so you've done obviously you published a lot of stuff right and you a lot of stuff on in, in the go and we didn't even cover half of the stuff that you've done as part of i don't even know how you have time to do all the stuff you do because you've got to pretty robust resume um what's next on the deck you must have another game coming is there anything else coming yeah so
1: we've got we've got some uh great stuff i think the the next item up on the on the deck we've got a uh, we've got a game called hero Rums uh fantasy uh deck building uh game and it's got really cool elements where you can play as different character classes they have different skills and abilities you can go on adventures level them up you get these permanent upgrades and there's skill trees and you make choices of what skills and such you get um we're taking hero realms and making it a digital app much like uh we have the star realms digital app but the hero realms digital app um, we're basically taking it in a, a different direction uh, than Star Realms. So basically there's a good reason for, for you to own both apps and play both apps. With the Hero Realms app, we've incorporated the, the PVE leveling stuff that we have for the Hero Realms campaigns. And we've taken the PVP version of that and that is baked into the game. So basically when you're playing Hero Realms, uh, the digital version, whether you're playing versus the AI, or a campaign, or you're playing online versus people. You will create a character, select the class, name your character. You will gain experience points when you play. You'll uh, so in the game you'll be buying cards and you know and, and standard deck building style. End of the game your deck resets, but when you level up, you get a permanent bonus. You have skill and ability cards that um, that can change and upgrade, you know, with your experience, you'll find magic items that are permanently added to your starting deck. Um, so basically, um, you, so you'll be playing online and you'll, you'll start a game with your like level six cleric, and you'll, you know, uh, and somebody, you'll, you'll get an opponent. Oh, it's, you know, a level seven fighter and mm-hmm. you've chosen certain skills and abilities with your skill points. They've chosen certain skills and abilities with theirs. So you've got very, uh, asymmetric, uh, Starting positions uh, with that. And um, win or lose your game, you will gain experience. So your character will move up, you know, basically move up levels over time. If you win, you get experience faster than if you lose, but you'll still get experience either way. So your character will be leveling up. Uh, And you also, there's also a ranking system in it. So basically, those wins will give you, will increase your ranking, losses will decrease your ranking, but your level will always be going up. So basically, it's a, digital deck building uh, game with characters you're building and leveling up over time and customizing. Um, so, you know, if you played two different, two fighters, one might be wildly different than the other because you're choosing different skills, finding different magic items, etc but you don't have to just play a fighter you could play a thief, you could play a ranger, you could play a cleric, you could play a wizard. Um, and of course we'll have the additional content coming down the road with the uh, the ability to play non-human uh, uh, races so you could play uh, play as an orc or play as a small folk or uh, play as an elf or a dwarf in addition to the classes um, so, uh, we got that coming up for Hero Realms Digital. Super excited about that. They'll be coming to Kickstarter soon uh, to get into the beta and basically help us, you know, help us make this game the way you want it to be. Uh, and then uh, we have a new uh, new sets for Hero Realms physical coming to Kickstarter. Uh, we have all new character classes coming. So we've got uh, classes like the Necromancer and the Druid um uh coming to hero realms uh there's a all-new base set for hero realms and a uh a 12-part adventure uh, uh adventure uh where you can t- take your character starting at level one and move- we'll go all the way up to level 12 um and uh, uh for the physical game so a lot a lot of cool stuff coming for hero realms and we have cool stuff uh for all the games coming up but i don't want to take up all your time with them
0: so the short, uh, short answer is you've got a lot of stuff coming down the pipe. A lot crazy. of stuff
1: coming. We got, we got a legacy set for Star Realms coming out. We've got a uh, we've got a game we're doing with uh, Richard Garfield coming. We've got all kinds of stuff uh, in the uh, uh, in the pipeline. So um, wow. yeah, it's uh, the, the, the team never stops working.
0: Well, on that notes uh, I want to wish you all the best. On uh, your current Thank Kickstarter you. campaign, which is uh, robot quest arena. If anybody wants to uh, find a link to this Kickstarter, it's in our show notes. Just check out the show notes. There's a quick link to the Kickstarter there. Or if anybody knows Kickstarter, you just go to Kickstarter and you just search robot quest arena, you'll find it. But I know that this is probably going to end up double what you have right now. And uh, it's certainly going to be a great, great success for you guys. I can't see. Thank uh, you, I yeah. see where it ends. So thanks again for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. You have a great year. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Take care. Cheers. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply join the Facebook group Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time.